ladies and gentlemen, will you join me in welcoming to the stage uh, journalist and broadcaster uh, interrogator uh, Sinead Gleeson and her subject Lenny Abramson. Thank you. Hope you will uh, enjoy this. I saw this last week, um, uh, and we will talk a lot about this film. Um, I'm really delighted to be here to talk to Lenny. I think um, there's nobody quite like him in Irish filmmaking. I think he's very visionary, risk-taking, um, and I was a fan long before I ever got to know Lenny. Adam and Paul, I think, is, is definitely my favourite Irish film, and I recommend it to people all the time. And I think when a new film of his uh, comes out, it's always an event and gets people talking. Um, and I think with this film, what I find really fascinating about Lenny's work is if you look at Lenny's film CV, and you're trying to, you didn't know anything about him, if you're not English speaking, you're from a faraway place, you look at him and go, what is this guy's kind of thing? What does he do? And then you look at the, the film CV, um, and there's a strange film about a band. There's a, there's a gritty film about Dublin urbanism. There's a very strange, sad, lonely tale about a man in rural Ireland. Um, and all the work is very, very different, including this film. Um, and I'm wondering, is that something that you're conscious of as a filmmaker in terms of like, I would like to do something that is exactly not like what I've just done, or is it completely accidental? It's a hard one to answer because, I mean, I think when I, I there's sort of two answers. There's the, there's the experience of choosing a project, and then there's what it feels like to look back on all of them, sort of, sort of from this vantage point. And in the, in the first part of the, the process, I mean, how it, it kind of unfolds is just, I get captivated by something. And I kind of potter around until something really sticks and I can't kind of let it go. And I always say that I'm, I'm basically quite pessimistic and quite lazy. So I always think everything's going to be a disaster. I don't think you're lazy. Well, I mean, that's my, I definitely have to fight against a tendency to just say, you know what, on balance, maybe I just won't do X or Y, and so the things that I do in the end are the things that I find impossible to let go of. Um, and there, but when I think about the projects and when I'm in them, I start to see the elements that repeat and the kind of territories that overlap, the sorts of characters that recur. I don't think there's one thing, but there are probably two towards sort of two and a half strands of things that keep interweaving. Um, and so there are aspects of The Little Stranger which in terms of shape and um, structure and kind of uh, like how characters constructed for the audience which, which are a bit like what Richard did in the way that you end on this kind of unknowing, unknowable sort of character who maybe is less clear to you in a certain way at the end than they were at the beginning. And I, I tend to make films which, although this isn't one of them, where, which often fall into two parts, that I keep doing that. And so there's a kind of... So there are, there are themes and types and tropes that recur. And I also feel like, I, I mean, it's a ridiculous thing to say at my particular point in, in my career and my age, but I still sort of feel I'm at the experimenting phase of things and there are there is a kind of territory that I feel that I want to explore but 
and I am working on some projects which I'm writing myself, um, and they, they, they are more, when I look at those, they are more concretely of the same, like in the same vein, in, that, in the sort of mining sense of the term. Um, but the other side of my interest is just, I love filmmaking, I love the possibilities of the medium, I get excited by a ch the challenge of it. So, um, you know, in this film, there were all sorts of things that made it difficult and, and, and that word sort of, which I hadn't done before. And so I still have that, um, I don't know, childlike interest in the thing that I just want to keep picking up different parts of the, you know, different bits in the toolbox and, and using them. It's interesting to hear you say that you think yourself is still in the experimental phase. And I'm wondering how, with the success that came with Room and the Oscars and all of that, does that affect you as a filmmaker? Because loads of filmmakers come to people's attention through college and shorts mm. and doing their, you know, crazy experimental work when they're young. Do you still feel after you've been through that kind of, you know, the treadmill of Hollywood that it, it's, are you meant to be more conventional or are you still allowed to be experimental? I mean, I think you can do whatever you like, but the temptation is certainly there to uh, knuckle down and take advantage of the opportunity that yeah. that provides, you know. And who will pay for exactly the money as well? Uh, yeah, and I mean, of course, there are good things and bad things about that. There's, um, it's good that, you know, it can be great to be resourced and all that stuff. But, you know, the bigger the projects, the harder it is to impose an unusual vision on them. Yeah. Um, you, you, you know, and there are, there are ways through that and there are little sort of shortcuts and, and, and kind of short circuits of the system which allow you sometimes, I think, and people do, make bigger films which still really matter in some way, but it's, but it's hard. Um, but, I, but I do think it's important for me to remember, I, what, what sometimes happens to filmmakers, and I've seen this before, people complain, oh God, I just can't get stuff made, and you know, it's a disaster, and, and the industry's changed, and, and all that's happened really is that their expectations of the sort of budgets they should have are so high yeah. that, uh, and maybe they aren't as successful as they were at one point, and so it seems impossible. But were they prepared to make something for a more modest budget, they could do absolutely anything they liked. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, there is a, there is a, a sort of expectation and, and probably a temptation. But for me, I kind of feel like if I'm going to please myself in, a, in, a, in any kind of meaningful way, mm. that I should um, use my freedom to look at what I've done so far and then move towards a kind of, you know, at least under a certain kind of description, a sort of purer mm. process. So what was it that drew you to this? And I know that, like, Sarah, I'm a big fan of her, her novels. Her work is wonderful. And also, she's been, been on TV, like Fingersmith, Tipping the Velvet have already been made, so there's been a visual representation of her novels already. So what was it about this book and that made you go, I want to make this into a film? Well, I can, think, I can remember the feeling when I read it, and, and the circumstances under which I read it were kind of significant um, in, in a way that speaks to how we watch films as well. Because somebody that I was working with sent it to me, but they sent it to me as a PDF um, with no title page, so no cover art, and said, it was a really quick email, I think you should read this, it's really good. Um, and I didn't know anything about it at all. And I started reading, and I love Sarah's voice as a writer, she writes really well, it's very, it's sort of fully realized, um, you know, when she goes into a world, you really believe it. And I found Faraday just utterly compelling and fascinating. And I didn't know there was any supernatural 
uh, component. And, and so when that started to happen, I'd already completely, I'd already become completely engrossed in who these people were and, and was looking, you know, could feel the tensions socially, sexually, you know, uh, psychologically within the novel. And, and was, was really taken with it. And then this element just felt like, it just felt virtuoso in the fact that she was throwing in, now I'm gonna do this gothic ghost story and it's going to have this beautiful metaphorical job to do in, in what is ultimately a very deep kind of psychological study of a character. So I just, you know, I was swept along with it both as a, as a reader and as also just a, a kind of, it's like, you know, if you can, if, you, if you're interested in storytelling and that's what you do, when you watch somebody do something so good and clever and you think you kind of understand what the mechanism is and then feel that you could probably find a language to do the same thing filmically, it was just a lovely kind of buzz. So was it daunting or kind of a, a, a bit of a relief almost to do something? Because I think this is the first film here that you could probably call it genre if you like. A genre comes with a lot of its own kind of, you know, points you've got to mm -hmm. hit. So that could be interesting and a little bit of a, a relief to a filmmaker, but also you don't want to fall into any of the traps. Yeah. So I sort of deliberately, I'm not, I mean, I, I am a, I've watched all sorts of films and I've enjoyed lots of genre films and some of them are really brilliant. I mean, and they do manage to do something more, yeah. you know. Um, although I've learned that when Hollywood says we want to elevate a genre, they just mean <laughs> genre. They don't, yeah. you know, um, uh, but but um, in a funny way, I didn't sort of think to myself, now I'm going to become a genre geek and watch every horror film and learn the rules. Instead, I sort of felt like it would be more interesting for me to take the story at face value and try and tell it as truthfully as I could. So in other words, not, do, not jettison the richness of character that Sarah has in the novel in the service of a, a more kind of uh, recognizably strict adherence to the rules of genre. I mean, it's interesting if, and again, it talks, it, it, it speaks to this idea of, of what you go in expecting. Like, you, if you want a knock-knock joke, it better have knock-knock who's there in it. Otherwise, you know, that, and, and that, you know, there's no point in saying, well, that's just so generic. I mean, that's what it is. But, but if you are prepared to step outside the sort of pattern of a standard horror. And I did that by sort of deliberately um, not being too strategic in terms of like, okay, where am I gonna put the, the peaks of tension? And instead it was just to believe that if we stayed with these characters, really went into their lives, particularly Faraday and particularly his relationship with Caroline, that what you might have would be a kind of more interesting texture and a, and a richer experience while still nodding to some of the the genre expectations. Um, I mean, we've spoken many times about the idea of adaptation and adapting books, um, which is something you've done for the last few films. So why, why take something that is somebody else's narrative, um, albeit one that's very cleverly refined and you just can do things with it mm -hmm. in terms of tweaking, as opposed to building from a script from, from the ground yeah. up? I mean, what are the challenges, what are the difficulties? It's not necessarily easier to adapt a book than what a script. No, um, but it is, it is, there is an imbalance in, in film, in, you know, in the world of filmmaking and, and because it's led, you know, because finance has so much to do with it, people are looking for, I suppose they're trying to hedge their bets or to mitigate risk and part of that is you look at this thing that exists, you know, there's a novel, 
people can look at it and go, yeah, I get that. So it takes away some of the uncertainty of commissioning work, which is just in, you know, where there's an empty room and you're going to fill it. Um, and I think that's ultimately dangerous because I think, I think adaptations, there have been some of the best things I've ever seen have been inspired by or adapted from. But having said that, I think the, the, the real heart of a healthy kind of culture of filmmaking is in original material. So after I did Room, I mean, Frank is a bizarre original sort of thing which takes as its starting point a, a, a kind of reimagined version of an already imagined character. Um, but after doing Room, I would not have, you know, if I was sort of the type to sit and strategically plan my career, I wouldn't have done another adaptation. But I'd been working on this for so long, was, just felt really, really committed to it. Um, it was ready. And I think had I gone off and done something else, I may never have come back and done this. And I, it was too important to me. So, so therefore, there were two big literary adaptations, one after another. Um, but I think your point is, you know, what you're pointing at is really a, a thing, you know. Um, a purely imagined, uh, sort of from the, from Ex Nihilo film is still, I think, probably where you will find the most kind of, the purest work on screen. Yeah. Um, I mentioned in my opening question that all the work is so different and yet I see lots of uh, overlap and crossovers in, in various ways. Uh, and when you're talking about room, you're talking about a very, very confined, constricted space. And then in this film, in The Little Stranger, you're talking about also uh, a classic haunted house, which is a place that people can't escape from, mm. whether that's physically or metaphysically or yeah. historically, emotionally, in terms yeah. of memory. Um, so what, what, what can that do? What can that kind of setting, that kind of compressed, confined, very claustrophobic setting do for a film? And there are scenes where, you know, Faraday's in the pub or he's in yes, the surgery. Yes, but the but house is but always present. You can't get away from it. I think it's just, there, like, a small space is just like a, a sort of a three-dimensional screen onto which all of the things that are going on psychologically become, they become attached. I mean, I'm fascinated by how places that I've lived in in the past capture... When I imagine them, it's as if the architecture or the wallpaper or that weird bit of broken tile in the fireplace, whatever, it's as if it represents or captures or somehow um, has, has gathered into itself whatever the state was of my life at that time. So if you have a terrible relationship, for example. It's a broken tile. It's, yeah, it's that thing which, which you know, that, so, so that's, the, that's, the, that's the sense in which ghosts are real, you know, that they really are, because we... We color our environment so much with our with our kind of mood and our and our memory, um, and I've always been interested in that. And it's a way of kind of it's like I don't know. It's like making stock or something. My my take on a film. So limiting the ingredients just but but boiling them down really to something really intense feels like the thing I most always often want to do. The other thing about it is actually that the. the Looking back on it, the challenge in Room versus The Little Stranger, or the other way around, it's like, yes, you're right, they're two confining spaces, but actually what's going on is kind of, there's a complete reversal. So the task in Room is how do you turn an 11 by 11 foot box into a world? Because the idea is not to represent it until the very end as what it really is, which is this terrible cage but to do something else to make it feel without cheating you know so you're not like 
you're not doing, you're not going into kind of fantasy filmmaking where you know suddenly the walls disappear and he's free in his mind. You really want to make it feel like it does to the child, which is complete and, and enormous. The challenge in The Little Stranger is the opposite. You've got a huge big house, and what you want to make it feel like is is this oppressive, um, constricting, small. So that so that sort of like technical challenge. You know, the visual challenge is different. Although the the idea of containment and and constriction is the same in both. Another kind of element that strikes me as crossing over, which is again interesting when you've got a uh, genre and you've got something, this isn't horror, it's kind of psychological drama or gothic horror or whatever it is. Um, if you look at the idea that all these things are meant to happen, there's things going bump in the night, it's a scary, spooky, isolated house, and yet what for me is fundamentally at the core of this film and the book is class. Yeah. Um, the idea that um, somebody has been born into a situation, feels very aspirational based on everything they see, the people they meet, this house they go to, only based on a couple of days that they mm. were actually there in their childhood and it's had a massive impact on, on life, which is something you did with, what, I mean, a different kind of yeah. class, but what Richard did obviously dealt with class and South County Dublin class. Um, class is very central to this film, which is something that could be easily missed in the kind of, oh, look at the genre and the spooky house. Yeah, I mean, class is the mecha- class is the, is the warping force <laughs> that creates what Faraday contains. Yeah. And actually, um, and if you think about it, so the idea, I suppose, is, and there's lots, we don't spell anything out or we try not to, but if you, we always imagine that growing up with somebody who, in a family where this place is, lauded and kind of uh, fantasized about fetishized, fetishized. Yeah. that's what kids do they that's how fetishes happen so the kid has a fetish for this thing which he can never um attain never never really sort of achieve what is put up there as the pinnacle mm-hmm. by his f- family um, and i found that just very moving because i think all of us as kids or to our kids do similar things whether we kind of know we're doing it or not. We create um, hierarchies and, and kind of... And so Faraday being the quintessential good boy in a way, the boy who wants to impress his parents and therefore wants to... who, who, who holds to the thing that they value most, yeah. to, the, to his destruction. That's a very powerful shape. I think the other thing that's going on in the, in the novel and, and in the film... Um, is sort of there are there are two countervailing power systems in the in this story. One is class, and the other is is gender, because um, you know, and, and it's interesting that Caroline, as the as the daughter of that house and as as a member of that class, has the authority with regard to Faraday. But Faraday, as the man yeah. in 1948, has the authority, and he spends the entire film telling them what they should do. Yeah. Um, and the fact that the fact that this this kind of the fact that he is thwarted ultimately by her will and cannot that cannot stand that cannot be allowed to stand I think that is an interesting aspect of this story which you know I think people have been talking about aspects of our culture which are still like that you know and that's this is just a more uh, this is a more kind of um, toxic version of that because yeah. of, of how things stood in the late 40s. Yeah. Um, I, we can obviously talk about the ending because you've all seen it. Um, I don't know if you've read the book, but I think you're quite faithful to the book in that the book is a little bit ambiguous but is also suggestive in the way that you're suggestive. Uh, it's a slightly different scene. There's, there's a mirror mm. in the book. 
Um, how did you feel about how you tackle the ending? Because again, with horror slash supernatural slash gothic slash psychological, there's a temptation where you, you, you could amp it up. Yeah. You, you could mess around with it. And did you just feel, no? I just don't think it's my, yeah. it's not my style. You know, I did think about it. And I did have, for a while, I experimented just in my head with a version of it that would be more conventional as a film. You know, um, so instead, for example, of just the humiliation in front of Suki um, and the breaking of the acorn, which in the book can be described, yeah. so the moment of the acorn can be made as enormous as you want in the mind. You can hear the, the, sna you can you hear hear the, the snap. snap, yeah. yeah. But, you know, what, you, what we played with for a while was the idea, well, okay, what if in a more conventional film what would happen is that Suki would say, I'm going to tell on you, yeah. and she'd go calling for her mother or for somebody, and then, and then he'd, he'd lose his temporary chase, so they'd run up the stairs. He'd be responsible for her death, you know, and that would be the moment of either the extreme emotion around that moment would be the, the, the fracture. And you were never tempted by that? No, because it just thought, I just thought, well, that kind of just sort of explains it. And, um, and I think what we did do is we, we, there is a different emphasis in the ending, and the mechanism is different because um, of how, how Sarah uses... His voice at the end was something we we repeat the beginning, which has a very different effect. Yeah. And then that image of the boy watching the man leave is something that we added because it just felt like a kind of it was the right emotional register to be in. Mm. You know, it wasn't. It's not a gotcha sort of thing. It's a yeah. it's an emotional um, stroke rather than a, yeah. an informational one. I yeah. think. Um, when I think of films that I, I've known and loved that kind of, you know, make me shiver or make me slightly scared or make me afraid, um, the, the central thing in, in films like this is, is, is music is so central. Uh, we, you know, whether it's John Williams' uh, Strings in Jaws or whether it's anything Burton Hermadon or this, you know, this, this, the stab of the, the cellos in Psycho. Um, you've worked with Stephen Rennick on all of your films for a really long time. So what kind of, because the music is very, very subtle in this film. Like, there's no da-da-da. No. Um, so what did you want from Stephen and what kind of brief did you give him for this musically? Well, we always work the same way, which is that I'm never prescriptive. And this would be true with actors as well. So I don't walk in and go, okay, I don't walk in and go, okay, so this is who you are and this is yeah. what's going to happen. Because if you do that, you just lose all of the the chance of being surprised by the actor or just seeing what they brought. Or, and it's the same with, with everybody that I work with. So with Stephen, we just had, so had low-key conversations over a long period of time, mostly going, it could be anything, mostly discussing, for example, should, it, should the instruments be contemporary to the period or are you allowed to do other things? And we've, we decided that without being kind of overt about it, yes, we, we could sort of effectively do what we wanted. Um, and there's a sort of Britishness in the score, so we were listening and I was, the only things I might do a couple of times was suggest a couple of pieces for Stephen to listen to, you know. And, and he would either go, yeah, like that does something for me or it doesn't. And then it's a big, long process of experimenting. So we did, there were cues that we tried which were far more conventionally, um, you know, uh, pulse raising. Hmm. But again, the pleasure may be harder to like, you know, it's a, it's a, the pleasure, I think, is subtler, but I think it's ultimately deeper to not do that. 
and to, I mean, there is plenty of stuff going on with, there's lots of low frequency stuff. There's lots of um, repeated sounds which are connected to the acorn snap or the, 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 the creaking floorboard that is beside it that you hear a couple of times. There's like lots of really interesting sound design and, and I think the score is the best thing that Stephen's done. It's, I think it's beautiful, but, it's, but, it's re but you have to listen to it quite a few times till you hear the internal rhymes. Yeah. And there are beautiful internal rhymes which I think again are clues to what the thesis of the film is. But it's all to be extracted, it's not, yeah. it's not given up easily. Um, talk to me about casting. Obviously, you've worked with Donald before, but did you have a, like, a strong wish list? I mean, you had Ruth Wilson, massive fan of the affair, uh, and then she was in Luther. I think she's incredible. Um, did you get everybody you, you wanted? Did yeah. You, and how did they respond to you reaching out going, please be in my film? They responded very well. I think in a couple of cases it was like, uh, um, I was surprised that you wanted to do this film, but I thought... This was a nice response. I was surprised you wanted to do this film, but I've seen your other work and I think you must have an idea about what you're going to do that's interesting because I think they were reading it as more genre yeah. than it was. That was one, one response from somebody, I won't say who. Um, oh, come on. No, come on. But with Donal, um, um, with Donal, because I'd worked with him before and I'm always sort of looking for something to do together again, and we get, you know, became friends on Frank and, and I've just massive regard for him as, a, as, a, as an actor. Um, but I sent it to him originally with the view that he might play the part that Will Poulter plays. Oh. Because Faraday was older mm. um, uh, in, the, in the novel and in the first draft of the script, Faraday. The age gap was bigger. Faraday was well into his 40s. Um, and then Donald came back and said, and it's very unlike Donald as well because he's not in any way pushy. He said, oh, you know what, I love it, but I'd like to play Faraday. And he's such a clever person and... I thought, well, this. I was immediately sort of excited because I hadn't seen it like that at all. I hadn't seen Faraday being like Donald at all. Um, and, and then I, we got into this conversation. It was really stimulating. And, and over a period of time, it began to make more and more sense. So then it was about reconfiguring. Is that rare, though, that you, know, that you, you have your mindset on casting and then an actor can persuade really you? Really rare, yeah. yeah. I mean, what often happens is that you have a sort of physical type in your head or something, which is never a good... It's really rarely a good thing to have, unless it's vital for the character. And then it's always somebody who doesn't fit that brief, who walks in and they do it a certain way, and you just get a whole series for me, a whole series of images yeah. and ideas, and I'm thinking about particular scenes that might need to... Like, exciting rewriting possibilities around that actor. Um, what, what's funny is... Um, what, what I do now, and again, like... Uh, people do these casting briefs. They say, like, can you do a casting brief for that character? And I've read people's casting briefs, and it's like, and read scripts which say this as well, like, you know, um, you know, the bartender, short, um, you know, uh, cow's lick hair, scar under left eye. And you're thinking, why on earth would you, if you're writing a novel, yes, specific, but it does not yeah, have to be that specific. Yeah. And so my casting briefs are just, I'd like to see anybody good who fits really generally these parameters. Yeah. Um, but it's very rare that an entire shift like that would happen. And I've never been convinced by any conversation where somebody said, you know, um, come let me, let me prove to you that I'm the person. And it's not because they're not good, it's just you usually have a strong impulse. You know what you want. Yeah. yeah. But Donald, that's, that's the first time and that, that was really interesting. 
Um, before we open out to the floor, some kind of brief questions. Um, I'm interested in what you're going to do next because I remember us talking a long time ago because we used to chat about books you might have done. Um, and you were doing, going to do Never Home. More? Never Home? There, yeah. yeah. Are you still doing it? Uh, it's still there. It's not, yeah. It won't be the next film. Yeah. What is the next film? Um, I just say Never Home is superb. It's American Civil War, but it is a literary adaptation. I just I feel like I have to. It's a great book. It's a, yeah. Um, and uh, and it's and it's really it's big scale in a really interesting way. And um, I think the next thing I'm going to do is a film. About, it's a real it's it's a real person, a um, man called Emil Griffith, who was a boxer in the states in the 1960s 70s, who was um, an immigrant from uh, British Vir or the American Virgin Islands, and he wanted he was gay. He wanted to to he loved fashion. He wanted to work in the garment district. He worked in a hat designing place. And the boss was a boxing fan and said, you've got an incredible physique, do you ever think about boxing? And he said, not particularly, but he was a very biddable guy, quite young, he was about 18 at the time. Took him to a gym and within a year he was world champion. And remained so for on and off, for, for, he was champion about five times at a couple of different weights. Um, but he's, his life was split between um, the kind of full on macho 1960s, 70s American boxing scene and the underground gay scene in Times Square. And the more I read about him, uh, and I think there are aspects of him, just particular character traits that he has. Where was he, from again? he was from the Virgin Islands, so okay. he was Caribbean. So person of colour as well, yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, he was. He, he was. So, so uh, in terms of his sexuality and his race and that period in American history. Um, so and he's the he's opposite. Kind of oh, it's, it's an amazing part, and it'll probably be somebody very, it'll be somebody quite young. So, uh, I'm on the search for that at the moment. Okay, I'm excited. Um, would anybody like to ask a question? We have a few minutes for questions. It's a little bit dark and hard to see you. There's somebody here about four rows back behind us. This gentleman with the glasses. I uh, really enjoyed the film. It was the most interesting film I've seen so far this year. Uh, my question is, can you talk about uh, the process of collaborating with producers uh, to make a film? Well, I'm lucky because um, the producer that I've worked with on almost everything um, I've done is Ed Guiney, and we've been friends since we were in our teens. Um, and it's I think it's quite unusual to have that sort of relationship. Um, so I, I just completely trust him, and we have a, you know, this great way of working together. But on this project, even though myself and Ed tried to get the rights to The Little Stranger, 10 years ago, we failed because I'd made two films, made Adam and Paul and Garage, and while they were liked very much by Sarah and her team, it would have been very hard to make the film with me at that point. You know, just didn't have the, the sort of uh, track record to, to raise the sort of money that, that would be needed. But we kept in touch, and the people who did get the rights were two excellent producers, uh, Gay League and Andrew Calderwood in London. And so it's the first time that I've worked really for a long, long time with producers that weren't sort of the home team. But Ed did get involved, so we all did it together. I've been, I've never had, I'm very lucky, and maybe it's also about choosing carefully, but I've never had the kinds of conflict with producers that are the staple of, uh, you know, stories, terrible stories about Hollywood. And I think. Probably that's just because I've been careful about who I've chosen and 
everybody's always wanted to make the same film. Thank you. Uh, gentlemen, uh, first seat there yourself. Uh, your wonderful microphone. film, thank you so much. Wonderful film, thank you so much for coming. Um, it, it, the supernatural element of the film starts, I don't know, maybe an hour in or, or sort of halfway through, almost creating sort of two different senses, uh, two different halves of the movie. Can you speak to that? Sure. Um, <coughs> there are hints of it. I, I think that the dog attack comes about I'm not sure, it's probably about 15 or 20 minutes in. And I think that there's an uncanniness about that, but you're right, it's very ambiguous. It, it, there's nothing that absolutely tells you that this is sort of uh, an impossible um, thing that's happened. And it's not really until about halfway or even later that you sort of can't ignore it. Um, I, it's a perverse impulse probably in, on my Part, but it just felt like it's stronger not to... I found it more interesting. I mean, it, it does mirror the book, which takes quite a long time for that stuff to happen, but I found it more... I found it essential in a way that you... You, are, you invest in the film as something that is in itself interesting, you know, interesting because of who these people are. And that as the sort of darker, um, you know, as those things grow up through it, they have more power if what they're, if the world they're entering is one that you already sort of accept as concrete and real. So I think that's probably where that impulse comes from. Thank you. Um, two gentlemen here. Uh, yeah, Larry, could, could I ask a question? The thing that I saw in the film, which maybe you don't see yourself, Dr. Faraday was a scientist, therefore a rationalist. And he was completely uh, apart from everyone else in the house who actually had the experience and who therefore believed that ghosts exist. Now, if you read the letters between Freud and Jung, Jung at one stage describes an experience he had with his mother, and Freud writes back and explains it on an extraordinarily rational basis all the way through. So, if I have to ask a question, the question is this. Maybe, as some people say, the Babadook was ruined when the monster appeared. So was it a deliberate decision that the little girl, if indeed she was haunting the house, should never become real or apparent? Yes, um, I, I, exactly that. I mean, Faraday is, you're right, it's called Faraday, which is the, you know, there's a double meaning there as well, famous scientist, but also dabbler in uh, things electrical, the charged entity. Because Faraday, so, so my take on who is haunting the house, and I think I have a belief. I mean, I have a, a theory of, of mine that 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 I that I use to structure the film. It was important not to ever show that because, yes, then it just for me that's the prick that bursts the bubble. You know, what is important are the tensions around the idea of haunting and what that expresses about the relationships between the people. Once you get into, once you solve the mystery, the kind of, I don't know, the balloon doesn't float anymore. So, but, but for me, it's not her, just as a, as, as a sort of, uh, you know, uh, but I'll, 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 I, I can, I'd love to chat to you about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was something, yeah, yourself, the white shirt there. We'll just get your microphone. Um, I was wondering, was there a temptation Faraday's narration from the film entirely and therefore makes more of like a, a witness to him. You know, 
It's, it's a very good question because we did talk about it. And I, every section that you see I've looked at many times without the voiceover. I think that would be, a, in the case of this film, where, where there is a, where Faraday himself is such a slippery character, and he's such an oblique character, that in order to just pin the viewer to him, and then, and, and that buys me the opportunity to pull at that connection, and challenge it, and, make, and, and you know, stretch it, and eventually make it break, in order to make that, that sort of connection tough at the start, it felt to me like he had to, we had to hear him speak. Um, and much as I'm almost always drawn to, as naturalistic as possible, a, uh, a style, this is still a, a Jamesian sort of ghost story. And it felt it needed just that, that degree of archness in delivery uh, to make it work. But that, I feel what's there is the, is the minimum possible VO. Uh, Lenny has to go very shortly, so we've time for one more question. If anyone has a really burning question, please stick up your hand. We haven't heard from any women either. That's a very good point. There we go. Hi, thanks for the film and sorry for my voice. Um, <laughs> the question is, uh, at the very end, when he looks out at the window and he sees all the new houses, um, it's such a... Uh, it's a I don't know, I, I got very touched by this view because it's like the view is gone, like he sold everything that was worth it to be in the house. Um, is there a special meaning in it or is it just... Well, I think mine? it's, you know, it's, it's the complete... First of all, there's lots of things, it's time passing, and, but it is the completion of that project and it's the arrival of the 1950s. You know, for me, that's what it is. And it, it also signals the emptiness of Faraday's victory. The thing he's always wanted is the house. But the house is kind of, uh, you know, um, the illusion of the house or the fantasy of the house can't really sustain the 1950s, can't sustain that closeness to the, 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 the rest of the world, the ordinary world. So it's part of the kind of pathos at the end to see that, yeah. Thank you so much for your question. Thank you all for coming. I hope you enjoyed the film. Thank you so much. All the